Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Michael Watson. In this episode, we're joined by Luke Wachab of the Institute for Free Speech to discuss the battle over donor privacy and anonymous political speech. This is the Influence Watch podcast. This week, the Treasury Department announced what sounds at first like a very technical adjustment to tax regs, but it bears on major principles of free speech and even potential mob violence. Under the new rule, certain nonprofits, namely those whose donors do not receive charitable tax deductions, will no longer be forced to submit to the IRS a confidential list of their substantial contributors' names and addresses. This change reverses a Nixon-era rule. Meanwhile, liberal groups led by Represent.us are advancing state and local measures that would force nonprofits that advocate on public policy issues to disclose their donors. This may sound to you like no big deal if you're not a mega donor yourself, but history shows that abuse of disclosure affects supporters of political causes at all levels and across the political spectrum. While you may recall the story of left-wing pressure getting then-Mozilla CEO Brendan Eich fired for the crime of contributing $1,000 to a social conservative ballot initiative in 2008, less well-known is the story of Margie Christofferson, who gave $100 to that initiative and lost her job. And liberals face the same pressure when government forces the disclosure of their contributions. For instance, Jean Koshinur, a West Virginian, was fired after she refused to make publicly disclosed contributions to Republican political candidates. Uh, Luke, you are very knowledgeable on all these issues, so tell us a bit about yourself and the group that you work with. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, the Institute for Free Speech is a nonpartisan nonprofit that defends First Amendment rights to speak publish, assemble, and petition the government. So basically, any First Amendment rights that have to do with political expression, political speech, political organizing, that's our focus. Uh, we were founded in 2005 by Bradley Smith, a former chairman of the Federal Election Commission, who got to see firsthand how so many of our regulations on political speech really do very little to combat corruption, which is their stated purpose, uh, but have a major impact in uh, impeding Americans from exercising their First Amendment rights to participate in politics. Uh, I joined uh, the Institute in 2013 when it was known as the Center for Competitive Politics. Uh, our work involves researching the effects of laws that restrict political speech, uh, analyzing and tracking uh, proposals to restrict political speech through either legislation or regulation, whether that's federally or in the states, and then we also represent clients whose First Amendment rights have been violated by government uh, in legal challenges to the law. Uh, we work on a broad range of free speech issues, uh, but I would say over the five years that I've worked at the Institute for Free Speech, donor privacy has taken a bigger and bigger role in our work, reflecting the growing threats to this very important aspect of the First Amendment. Uh, well, thanks for that. It sounds like you stay very busy. And Mike, this is very much about speech, but it's about a lot more than speech as well, isn't it? Yeah, so if you haven't had the pleasure of living under a rock for the past couple of years, and if you have, please send your please send me an email so that I can come live with you. Uh, you probably have noticed that political rhetoric and political intensity has gotten com almost completely out of hand. In fact, it has gotten completely out of hand. Uh, people are being chased out of restaurants. People are being shouted down in the streets. People have been physically attacked. 
Uh, last year, there was a mass shooting of Republican congressmen and Republican congressional aides. And then, of course, in later in that later in that year, later last year, uh, a woman, Heather Hare, was killed by a uh, a neo-Nazi for protesting neo-Nazis. Um, so the amount of acrimony that has grown in the body politic of against people who sh- have opposite political beliefs uh, has again got it is it has literally gotten someone killed, and it should therefore not be surprising that people who want to uh, support uh, the expression of political beliefs uh, might wish to remain anonymous so that they are not themselves personally uh, harassed, attacked, or God God forbid worse as part of the. Uh, as part of everything that's going on. Now, Justice Thomas uh, on the Supreme Court has talked about this uh, not too long ago, uh, that there is a very long tradition, am I correct, of anonymous political activity. Uh, Yes, there was a case in 1995 uh, called McIntyre v. Ohio Elections Commission, which held that a woman who had gone to a town meeting uh, and circulated leaflets, anonymous leaflets, against a tax increase that an Ohio law that said that that claimed to say that she had to put her name or the name of a political committee on that leaflet was uh, was unconstitutional and in concurring in the judgment uh, Justice Thomas goes through a very long uh, historical uh, recounting of the history of anonymous political speech in the colonial era and the early republic, up to the up to the ratification of the First Amendment, because of course he was trying to determine when the First Amendment talks about freedom of the press, does it include the freedom of the anonymous press? And of course he concluded, yes, it did. The so you have the the John Peter Zenger case where uh, the royal government of New York, I believe it was New York. Uh, came after a newspaper publisher who published anonymous writings against the royal governor, uh, and he was found he was found innocent by the jury. Uh, you have obviously the Federalist Papers were all written under pseudonyms. The Anti-Federalist Papers were all written under pseudonyms, uh, and it was fairly common even into the early Republic, where Federalists and Anti-Federalists uh, and Jeffersonians would write anonymously in their newspapers. Their various propaganda for their various uh, their these new budding effectively political parties, and then uh, Justice Thomas, of course, being one of the black members of the court, no doubt is also thinking to another line of cases uh, that the Supreme Court has dealt with on this question of do you have the right to associate freely but anonymously with others when you have a political concern? In this case, not uh, taxes being raised, but uh, civil rights for blacks. Right. So. Obviously, you know, as, as nasty as the political environment is now, uh, it's not as bad as it's ever been. If you were an African-American civil rights activist in 1958 Alabama, it was considerably worse. Uh, the KKK operated as essentially a tolerated terrorist organization, bombing, bombing churches, killing people. Uh, so when the state of Alabama demanded that the NAACP hand over its membership list and its contributors list, uh, they immediately they immediately sued because they were genuinely afraid that that information would either be used by uh, the segregationist government to go after that to go after them or would fall into the hands of this sort of tolerated terrorist organization 
to engage in violence against their members. Uh, this case comes up to the Supreme Court, and ultimately the Supreme Court finds that, no, the, the right to associate anonymously, the right to advocate against this very oppressive government must be protected, and that they must not be ordered to hand over their membership and contributors list. And uh, I think some of the important things about NAACP v. Alabama, first of all, that's a unanimous Supreme Court decision. So I think oftentimes and this- a, And a unanimous Supreme Court decision by a much more liberal Supreme Court than we, than yeah. we have today. Yes. And, uh, and in that ruling, the court really articulated what I think is, is maybe the key principle here when it said that compelled disclosure of affiliation with groups engaged in advocacy may constitute as effective a restraint on your freedom of association- as the other forms of government restrictions on and it, speech, and it, and it doesn't, and it doesn't necessarily. Cases. And in the decision, they said they didn't matter whether it was the private actors, this tolerated terrorist organization, or the government itself that was going to engage in the intimidation. The yes. it was the government order to disclose that was the chilling effect, and therefore it was unacceptable. And if you look at the concerns that the court had about what could happen if this information became public, it certainly is true that speakers today generally don't face threats on the level of civil rights workers in the 1950s in the Jim Crow South. That's absolutely true. But the actual concerns that the court articulated included loss of employment, economic reprisals, manifestations of public hostility. These sorts of things are still very real threats that we see, as we talked about at the top of the show. Uh, so the need for privacy and association with groups that are involved in policy advocacy and speaking about issues, uh, that is alive and well today. It's not an artifact of history in any way, shape, or form. No, well, in, at the beginning, uh, the lead-in, I was talking about the, the case Brendan Eich and whatnot, and that was that those battles were over the Proposition 8, a ballot initiative in California, and the um, the the folks who didn't like Prop 8 uh, largely blamed uh, Mormons for it because the Mormon Church had had supported one side in that fight, and there were mobs threatening Mormon church services uh, in California after this. And you know, call me crazy, but when a minority religion has mobs around its places of worship, that's a, a somewhat disturbing and certainly chilling uh, proposition. Well, let's switch now to the. Uh, to this week's big news. It's still, I noticed this morning on uh, NPR, even though the decision came down at the beginning of the week, NPR is still reporting it on the top of the news. Um, uh, this was a slightly technical tweak of existing regs, so we don't want to get deep into the weeds, but we need to uh, just very briefly, Mike, if you would explain uh, the tweak. So 501c organizations, not tax-exempt organizations, uh, among them Capital Research Center, which puts on this podcast, has to disclose to the IRS uh, on what's called Schedule B of its tax return the names and addresses and amount of contribution of its donors. Now, over $5,000. Over $5,000. Over $5, and what the IRS is supposed to do is to then on the publicly disclosed tax return, redact the name and address. So it's not personally identifiable, but they do know the amount. But a somebody can go and find out the amounts that were contributed. Yeah, because 501c tax filings are always made public. That is to say, yeah. the general form is made public, the, the but not the particular Schedule B we're talking about. Right. Uh, so now there have been incidents. Uh, none of them have been 
proven conclusively to have been intentional, but there have been some very suspicious circumstances. Uh, perhaps the most well-known was getting back to the issue of same-sex marriage that we discussed earlier. Uh the National Organization for Marriage, which was one of the leading advocacy groups against the recognition of same-sex marriage, had its Schedule B leaked to the Human Rights Campaign, which is the leading organization advocating for the recognition of same-sex marriage. Uh, the IRS ultimately had to pay a $50,000 settlement. They did not admit that it was intentional, but uh, but you know that, that indicates the potential for abuse. Uh, a similar leak hit the Republican Governors Association Public Policy Committee, where the IRS accidentally released their a portion of their unredacted, so-called unredacted Schedule B with the list of names and addresses. Now, this is further complicated because we're talking about a federal tax form, but uh, these are charitable groups. Uh, to off, well, these are nonprofit groups, including charitable groups, which subsection, and they also have to typically file with state regulators. Um, so tell us how that can affect things. Well, uh, we, we can ask a federal judge who enjoined a demand by the state of California to see the unredacted Schedule B of Americans for Prosperity, which is a uh, libertarian-leaning 501c4 social advocacy, advocacy group. Um, the California demanded the donor list as a, as a, uh, um, as a, Condition for uh, yeah, as a condition condition for charitable for nonprofit registration, uh, Americans for Prosperity sued, and when it went to trial, the uh, the government California had to admit that on numerous occasions, whether through carelessness or <laughs> whether through carelessness or malice, uh, that they had allowed this confidential information to to be released, and that they didn't really need the confidential information for their the enforcement and administration of their uh, nonprofit registration laws. Yeah. Now, Luke, your group uh, fights in a number of these cases, I believe. So can you tell us a bit more about the legal landscape, since this is now all in the courts, fighting about whether these things get released? Yeah. Un unfortunately, there are a lot of states and localities that have been in recent years, I guess, pushing the envelope to see what can be required disclosure-wise uh, before courts will step in and say, no, you can't do that. We talked about what a great ruling NAACP v. Alabama is. But nonetheless, many states uh, nowadays try to pass laws that expand uh, the laws that traditionally affect uh, organizations explicitly engaged in campaigning, your candidates, uh, political parties, PACs, super PACs, and basically take very similar requirements and donor disclosure requirements and expand them to apply to groups that speak about policy issues, um, particularly if you're going to you know, have communications that mention candidates in a period near an election, um, which oftentimes involves pure issue speech. Uh, we see a lot of states nowadays going after that stuff. Uh, we had a, a case in Utah where we represented a, a trio of nonprofits, the, the Utah Taxpayers Association, the Utah Taxpayers Legal Association, and the Libertas Institute in a challenge to a law that was passed there that was so vaguely worded that it allowed for the regulation of speech that only indirectly influences elections and how people vote. And obviously, speech about legislation, speech about policy issues can very often have an indirect influence on how people vote. Um, so ultimately, the state admitted that that was such a vague standard that it violated the First Amendment, and they agreed not to enforce it. Unfortunately, there are other cases that haven't turned out that way. 
uh, we represented a small religious nonprofit in Delaware that had published voter guides uh, in election years in the past. And these were very, you know, nonpartisan voter guides. They listed the candidates, a wide range of issues, said support, oppose, no opinion. It wasn't, um, you know, a partisan communication. But because they were spending a small amount of money to publish and mail out these guides, which named candidates in the period around an election, of course, a voter guide's not very useful if you're not having an election, um, they were going to have to disclose the names and addresses, the private information of their donors going down to very small levels. For a small nonprofit that isn't interested in being involved in politics, that just wants to uh, promote civic engagement and voter knowledge, it's not worth it for them to go through the mountains of paperwork and to expose their supporters' uh, personal beliefs and giving. Um, and unfortunately, even though we sued that law, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals sided with Delaware. We appealed to the Supreme Court, and they did not hear the case. Uh, notably, Justice Thomas uh, wrote an opinion uh, dissenting from that denial of cert or from the Supreme Court's decision not to hear the case. Uh, he indicated that it was a missed opportunity to clarify that the interest in transparency does not always or even often trump the First Amendment rights of speakers, and that we had too often sacrificed the latter for the former. Uh, Justice Alito also indicated he would have heard that case. Uh, but until the court speak clearly about this and really reaffirm the NAACP v. Alabama ruling from 60 years ago, we're going to continue to see policymakers that want to shut down groups that are criticizing them go after donor lists as a way to do that. Yeah, the, the, you, you raise a great point there that I want to reiterate, that transparency is something the government is supposed to suffer. We, the people, have a right to know exactly what the government is doing. And I can tell you, as somebody who studies money flows from the government to nonprofits, those are incredibly <laughs> hard to find. If you're trying to figure out which part of the thousands of agencies and bureaus are giving money to politically active groups, often colluding with them on their own, you know, to the government and the groups colluding, it's incredibly hard to trace those money flows. We have a terrible lack of transparency there. And that's what transparency is for, for the government. Government. For the people, uh, it's privacy that the, is supposed to be protected, and free. And as NAACP v. Alabama said, the freedom of association, including the freedom of anonymous political association. So privacy is the key for persons, private persons, and the transparency is the key for the government, but we are doing it exactly the opposite in a lot of these. Well, we've talked about how this in those state filings, some things can get leaked and whatnot. It also happens that the laws are so confusing that even you would think savvy political, not, uh, politically active nonprofits uh, actually sometimes screw up and hand over to states their, uh, their list of contributors without having redactions. Uh, James O'Keefe of the Veritas Project does a lot of controversial political stuff. He, uh, he handed the state of Oklahoma uh, his things, or rather his accountants or someone was sloppily did that, and, and they got their contributors got outed. But Mike, this is by no means simply an issue for conservative groups and conservative donors, is it? There's the opposite. No, there side. have been there have been instances where uh, where left wing and liberal groups have their unredacted Schedule Bs have fallen into the hands of uh, conservative journalists. Uh, the Probably the most notable was the Center for Community Change, a community organizing uh, labor union advocacy group, uh, which saw its unredacted Schedule B fall into the hands of the Washington Free Beacon, a conservative journalism outfit. 
Uh, you know, we don't know how that, you know, we don't know how that happened. Obviously the, you know, journalists don't like to, don't like to reveal their sources. Um, but you know, it shows that as long as you have this, this regulation and you have this sort of the situation where you have the public inspection version of the tax return and this non-public inspection version, there's always that risk that somebody who maybe should know better uh, either through carelessness or malice, releases what is supposed to be confidential information. Yep. Now, let's have uh, clarify one more thing about this, the new reg that, that uh, the IRS has come out with, and that is uh, it only applies to the so-called social welfare groups, the C4s, labor unions, and, and business leagues. Uh, it doesn't change anything for public charities like us or the YMCA, uh, right. So the what in rescinding the regulation on all nonprofits that don't that a contribution to that nonprofit does not give the donor a charitable deduction. Obviously, if you are an itemized tax filer and you write a thousand dollar check to a public to what is legally a public charity under five hundred one c three, you then get to take the charitable tax deduction under the tax law. Uh, so the IRS said, well, because you can still do that, we need to know, we still need uh, the list of con- contributors over 5,000 to a tax-deductible public charity so that we can, if we did a tax audit, we can go look and see, okay, yes, this person claimed a $10,000 contribution to this group, and this group said that they received a $10,000 contribution, and it all ch- and it all checks out, and they're not cheating on their taxes. Yeah, and if anybody believes the IRS spends much time checking on that, I have a bridge in Brooklyn I can sell him, but uh, th- that's at least maybe slightly plausible. I, I want to point out there's a, there's actually a bill in Congress. You know, the, the IRS did what it felt was within its power and authority to do in terms of stopping the collection of donor information, names, and addresses that it doesn't need. I mean, that's the really, I think, and there, and there is explicit, here. And there is currently, under current law, there is explicit legislation that they must collect this information for 501c3s. And so there's a bill in Congress right now, uh, the Preventing IRS Abuse and Protecting Free Speech Act, I believe it's H.R. 4916, sponsored by Congressman Peter Roscom, that would end uh, the mass collection of donor information to nonprofits for virtually all nonprofits. So that would really sort of take this move the next step and, and fix the statute in addition to uh, the regulatory move, that and, the and IRS obviously has any made. Re- any regulatory move can be reversed by a subsequent administration. Yeah, and and so that bill, I believe, passed the House in the last Congress, but didn't get heard in the Senate. So that's that's one way that policymakers can really take up the ball and push the fight forward for donor privacy going forward. Yeah, and I would add that the Wall Street Journal uh, this week, uh, in its editorial on this whole issue, urged Congress to make statutory what the what the IRS has just done as a as a mere regulation. Well, um, but it is worth reiterating that the that the information that is now no longer being required to be given to the IRS was never supposed to be public at all. So again, on the question of transparency, even if you thought this was valuable transparency that of disclosing private person's actions, uh, theoretically, it was, it was only disclosed in very confidential form to the IRS. So the reg itself is not, shouldn't be, uh, effectively making any difference except for the fact that through malice and sloppiness both, these things do often leak out. 
Um, well, this is also not, we've been talking about this, the federal level here, both regulatory and, and uh, statute law, but uh, Mike, there are also efforts underway at lower levels of government to, uh, to force disclosure. Right. So since, since 2017, the federal climate for increased, more onerous, more restrictive, m- more uh, apt for abuse uh, donor donor disclosure laws has been has been unripe. So, what does a good advocacy group do? They go to whatever level of government will listen to them. Uh, so, represent.us, uh, which is kind of taken the lead on these sorts of measures, has gone to the state level, especially with ballot initiative campaigns. Uh, you know, leg- legislators uh, tend to be a bit more skeptical of. Uh, these sort of donor disclosure rules, because they understand from personal, from their own personal experience, uh, the potential back, the potential backlash that you can get, uh, and of course they have legislative, you know, they have legislative power. They're getting something for all their trouble. Uh, you know, somebody who writes a hundred dollar check to a ballot measure, uh, you know, they're not getting anything for the fact that you know the, um, you know, the local activist group, you know, is picketing outside their house and demanding that they be fired. Uh, but they, they, you know, they recognize that there's, uh, they, they often recognize that there are, there are trade-offs and that they need to respect the, the, uh, anonymous association rights of, of, uh, donors and contributors, uh, ballot initiatives. It all sounds very simple. Oh, we're going to have transparency. Oh, we're going to expose corruption. Oh, we're going to do, uh, we're, we're going to, we're going to make this easy and it's all going to be fine. And there and there's not going to be any trade-offs. So they go they go for a ballot measure. Um, they they already they passed one in South Dakota that was later that was overridden by the state government. Uh, well, now they're coming back with another one in South Dakota to make it impossible to override future ballot measures. Uh, they're pushing one in North Dakota, which would require anyone who uh, anyone who makes a statement on a ballot measure to disclose all their contributors down to $250, so one-fourth of a Brendan Ike. Um, uh, they're pushing, they've, they've pushed other ballot measures in Washington State to have government-funded political campaigns. Um, you know, they're, they're very aggressively uh, advancing these uh, disclosure laws and laws to uh, neuter the ability of activists and contributors to have their ability to get their message out. Which is an irony, uh, we should add, that Represent U.S. is doing all this as a 501c3. Is it a C3 or a C4? Now I'm going to forget. I think it is a C4 to be they have a, they have a They have a 4 they have and, they ha- and they have yeah. an educate And they, have the, they, they do the standard, we have our activist social welfare lobbying organization, represent.us, and our ostensibly charitable educational group, represent.us education fund, which is able to take foundation money. Yes, because the point I was going to make is that this is a highly, this is a very politically charged issue, and 501c3 private foundations on the left, like Tides and the Park Foundation, are funding, and Hewlett as well, I believe, are funding uh, represent.us's efforts uh, in this area, well, we'll get it uh, a little bit more of on the on that how that all works. But the uh, I want to turn now to the press coverage of the regulation that we're uh, talking about because it is some of the most uh, flatly inaccurate and grossly misleading and biased coverage that I've s- 
seen O for, I don't know, weeks now. <laughs> I guess you have to go back weeks to find something as bad. Because uh, Luke, um, if one were to believe the prestige uh, media, this regulation affects only a handful of very powerful actors. And who would they be? Uh, I believe if you were watching the headlines, you would be reading about the NRA, the Chamber of Commerce, and the Koch brothers, which is especially interesting since they are not a nonprofit organization; they are two individual human beings. And, and people know very, and people know very well what that they're what they're doing. Yeah, so when <laughs> we, we are fully aware that Charles and David Koch are libertarian philanthropists who give lots of money to free market groups. It is very <laughs> awkward to, in the same breath, have people saying, "Oh, the contributions to these groups are secret and untraceable. We don't know where the money's coming from," and uh, this change is great for the Koch brothers because, of course, they give all that money to those groups that's secret and untraceable, and we don't know where it comes from. Uh, clearly, the journalism and the political process is is able to locate a lot of the the, the big givers and major organizations. I mean, a lot well, of these no, organizations and, and, and a lot of the and a lot of these big givers. Let me let me let me jump in there. A yeah. lot of these big givers: your Charles and David Koch, your Tom Steyer, your George Soros, your uh, Bloomberg, your Mike, your Mike Bloomberg, your. Um, uh, your Sheldon Adelson, your Haim Sabin, these guys, they they want to be, I mean, maybe not as much as they sometimes are, but they, you know, they have a belief and they have lots of money. They're very prominent people in their community and they want to advance. You know, Sheldon Adelson is very concerned with the security and stability of Israel. Uh, you know, Tom Steyer wants to be out in front yelling about the impeachment of the president and stopping global warming. Uh, you know, uh, you know, Charles and David Koch want free markets and deregulation. They use these organizations as platforms for their own advocacy. The people who are really under the biggest threat are the people who don't have, you know, $10 billion in the bank to give away, who if, you know, t you know, 500 union guys show up on their lawn and start yelling, their, their lawn is several thousand feet back from where they're actually, <laughs> where they're actually, where they actually live. You know, it's the people who... Again, the people that we mentioned earlier who have a small involvement, who just want to get at, you know, who just want to support a message, support their beliefs, who then all of a sudden end up under intimidation, you know, getting the Twitter death threats, or God forbid worse. Yeah, and, and none of this stuff is new. You know, the, the organizations that we're talking about, when it does affect uh, an NRA or, or a League of Conservation Voters, these nonprofits have played a role in American public life for decades and in some cases centuries. Uh, Americans have belonged to membership organizations that profess their beliefs and that seek to influence policy and public life. Uh, for a very long time. So I think a lot of the, the rhetoric around, you know, dark money is this label you hear a lot. Um, you know, that's a new term, but it's not a new phenomenon in terms of groups that maintain the privacy of their supporters having some level of influence in public life. Uh, and oftentimes, you know, they, we talk about these organizations as if uh, no one knows what they want or what they're doing when you, you go to their websites. Largely, they exist to tell you what they want and Everyone what they're doing. Everyone knew the Anti-Saloon League was... For was against <laughs> saloons. You know, everyone knows the National Rifle Association is for gun rights. Everyone knows the League of Conservation Voters is for environmentalism. You know, the the fact you know whether or not uh, their their contribute you know how their contributors are precisely structured is not the most relevant thing about them. I I would argue. It's most interesting to the groups that want to oppose them and, you know, in some cases, organize efforts to target the less powerful supporters that they feel they might actually be able to scare away. Yep.
Yeah. Well, l- let me take a second to to run over some of these disgusting, biased things. So this morning, uh, I had NPR talk about this in their news cycle, and the only donors mentioned was were NRA and Chamber of Commerce. Uh, the New York Times headline is, IRS will no longer force Cokes and other groups to disclose donors. Now, first of all, grossly biased to say mention Cokes when there are plenty of lefty groups. And disclose donors. Well, it is, except it isn't disclosure, yeah. except secretly to the IRS. It's, I mean, <laughs> I, I disclose all of my taxes to the IRS, but please God, I don't disclose them all to the world. Uh, and then let's take the Wall Street Journal's, uh, this is not their editorial page, which of course applauded this advance for protecting free speech, tiny advance for protecting free speech. This is the news section. This is their lead sentence describing the, the what happened. The Treasury Department will allow some nonprofit groups to provide less information about donors on their tax forms in a win for conservative organizations engaged in politics. <laughs> now, that's just ridiculous. And they, they, a few sentences later, social welfare groups have been active across the political spectrum, but conservative ones have been particularly involved in politics. Well, now, I have a, four quick points on how ridiculous this is. First, this, they're basically talking about the C4 universe here, 501C4s, and nobody even know, nobody on the planet knows how big that universe is in terms of money. Um, we do know that it's less than a tenth the size of the 501C3 universe of regular charities. Um, we also know that of the 80,000-some C4 groups, uh, most of them are not involved in politics in any serious way. Um, and then in and added to that, we do know that of the, the tiny group that are involved in politics, there are lots of left-wing we, groups. We had mentioned the League of Conservation Voters a couple of times. There's probably the, they're, they're probably the most well-known. Yeah, well, and Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood Act. Another, Planned Parenthood a, you another. Know, a pillar of the Democratic Party. I mean, if, if Brett Kavanaugh does not make it onto the Supreme Court, the, the Planned Parenthood will be able to take a bow. They are heavily engaged in one of our most contentious political issues right this second. Uh, and then lastly, the um, even if you, and this is, I want to throw it to you, Luke, because I know you're a great expert on this side. So the C4 universe, nobody knows the real size or breakdown left to right, but we do know that it's not that big. And then we know that the part that's at all political is even tinier. And it's, if not perfectly 50-50 left and right, it's a big mix of left and right. And then when you take all of this together, all the left and right dark money universe, so-called, uh, it's a drop in the bucket in the in politics at large. So exp- explain that to if you would, Luke. Yeah, uh, anytime you're dealing with with really large numbers and large amounts of money, it's important to have some context because if you just read a headline that shows that some nonprofit group spent ten million dollars, uh, you know, on election ads, that sounds like a lot of money to you and I. Uh, it, it is a lot of money to you and I. And um, however, though, if you look at the total spending in federal elections, and this is only federal, not even touching the states. From the candidates, from the super PACs, from the political parties, from the other committees that are out there, uh, you're talking about billions of dollars uh, each election cycle that are spent, of which less than 5% each cycle comes from the nonprofits we're talking about and which gets sort of slandered as dark money groups. Um, and there's good reasons for that. One is, I mean, tax rules limit their ability to engage uh, in election activity. If they do too much of it, they just have to be a pack. Um, so if you're a wealthy donor seeking to influence elections, you're much more likely to give to a super PAC. As you were talking about, wealthy people don't have to con- have as many concerns for their safety and privacy as an average donor might. 
Um, so there's actually not that much money going directly into politics from these nonprofit organizations. And I think that's always an important thing to keep in mind when people say we need more disclosure, we need more disclosure. You know, if we're disclosing 96, 97 percent of all the money, if we can associate all of that money spent with a donor who contributed it, I mean, that's that's doing really well. Uh, if someone was telling us that, you know, law enforcement preventing 97, 90 percent of crime wasn't good enough and we needed these draconian new measures to get 100 uh, percent, there should never be any crime. You know, we would do a lot of bad things and we would trample over a lot of people's liberties in pursuit of that goal. Um, so when it comes to keeping, you know, election spending transparent, it really is. Uh, if you contribute over $200 to a candidate, to a political party, to a PAC, or to a super PAC, which a lot of people don't realize, uh, your contribution, your name, address, occupation, employer, all of that is publicly disclosed, put up online in a government database that anyone can access for all time. Uh, so there already are, you know, fairly few options to participate in politics while maintaining your privacy. And that's why it's so important that we protect those nonprofits that represent one of the few avenues that people can engage without being fully exposed to the whole world. Well, th thank you, Luke. That's uh, I, I recommend people go look up Luke Wacob's work on this at the Institute for Free Speech's website. But uh, and you'll see in some electoral cycles the so-called dark money isn't even one percent <laughs> of the political spending. So, and yet, of course, our hysterical press—if they can get a couple of news cycles to attack conservative groups—is happy and, to do so. And if, if I if I may jump in, you know, political spending follows a sort of arms race logic that. Whatever, you know, one side will invent and will sort of develop a new vehicle, you know, it'll be the 527, you know, and then in the next election cycle, the other side will have copied it completely. You know, in 2012, uh, you know, the Democrats brought forth the Senate Majority Pack and the House Majority Pack, and these were big super PACs for their, uh, for the House and the Senate, and guess what the Republicans had done by 2014? They had the Congressional Leadership Fund and the Senate Leadership Fund to do the exact same thing. The... Uh, you know, with the 501c groups, you know, okay, you know, Americans for Prosperity comes for, you know, comes forward in kind of 2010-ish, and now you have NextGen, which is Tom Steyer's network of 501c and super PACs and all sorts of things on the left. Uh, you know, we've discussed, you know, Scott, you and I have discussed private political machines with, uh, as it referred to George Soros, George Soros, uh, Rebecca Mercer, again, one on each side. Uh, the, the, uh, like, an, even if it's 60, 40, right, you know, 60, 40, right, left, you're not getting, you're not buying very much with that extra 20 because you're, you're going, you are at a point of saturation. You are at a point where everybody can develop these vehicles. Everybody can use these vehicles. And over the long, over the long run, over a multi-cycle period, they all do. Uh, and this sort of monomaniacal focus on, the use of these vehicles by uh, the right, you know, by the right, uh, sort of betrays the um, the political interests of the New York Times Corporation, uh, which is a corporation, uh, but under our First Amendment has free speech rights. <laughs> yes, oddly enough, and in, and in fact, the uh, for the last complete 
election cycle of 2016, uh, one, you talked about how all this information is publicly available on political giving, opensecrets.org, uh, which is a left run by a left-wing group, does a great job of compiling the numbers off the government databases. So I looked up the 2016 cycle, last complete one for the, the largest uh, C4 and C6, that's the social advocacy groups and the chambers of commerce type groups. And in the largest spenders, I do find NRA and Chamber of Commerce, but I also find Majority Forward, Environmental Defense Action Fund, League of Conservation Voters, I America Action. Uh, you know, there's there's plenty of lefties and righties playing in uh, in this uh, ballpark. And 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 let's and let's be clear. You know, the the left sometimes whines about buying elections. Uh, ask the donors to right to rise how effective their <laughs> uh, their buying the election was in 2016. Ask the donors to American Crossroads how effective their buying the election was in 2012. Uh, the first being a lefty and, and the second a right. Well, they're both uh, both both or both sorry, righties because right. that was Jeb Bush's super PAC in 2016 and Mitt Romney's in 2012. The uh, from 2012 to 16, 12, 14, and 16, the top donor, as compiled by Open Secrets, the top individual donor, uh, has been on the losing side. Uh, I believe it was uh, Shell Nadelson in 2012. Obviously, he supported Mitt Romney, but Romney lost. Uh, and in 2014 and 2016, it was Tom Steyer, uh, the arch environmentalist who supported Democrats in 2014, and Hillary Clinton in 2016, both of whom lost. In one of those cycles, what always amazes me is you'll often hear uh, gun control supporters say, oh, I wish we could get a group that had the sort of financial strength of the NRA to push for gun control. In 2016, they had one. <laughs> they, they have, they, there's been times where they have had one, and Michael Bloomberg in particular has put enormous sums of money into backing those sorts of groups. But as, as was the case with Jeb Bush, as was the case with uh, Sheldon Adelson and, and Tom Steyer's giving, if your spending is not connected to a message that resonates with the electorate, it really doesn't get you anywhere. It's not that hard to tune out ads. Uh, and none of this stuff really, I mean, if you wanted to compare the value of free media coverage, that dwarfs candidate spending in presidential elections several times over. Those estimates for what that's worth is often, you know, like $8 billion, I think, in the 2016 race, whereas, you know, Hillary and Trump would have combined to spend, you know, maybe, you know, a billion uh, on their own. Yeah, no, so it's a, it's a it's very silly thing. Although I I would throw out that if there really is a scandal in the entire nonprofit sector, which includes the the quote unquote charitable and not charitable, uh, to me it would be the way. And this is something where the left and right are not equal, and that is in the five hundred one c three the the tax deductible charitable side of things. The 501c3s include both the big private foundations like Soros's Open Society and the Ford Foundation, um, and it. And then it includes the uh, the public charities, legally speaking. That's the, that are the uh, the activist groups. Um, most charities are not that, but that there are plenty of activist charities. And the left uses its foundations and its public charities to fund massive amounts of voter registration and get out the vote, which is as in busing folks to the polls. The right does not do that through 501c3s. Uh, and I think the average, you know, it's legal as long as it's nonpartisan, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But I think the average American who has, doesn't have any idea that private foundations and public charities are registering and, and that, you can, that you can get a tax deduction to support your side, essentially your sides get out the vote as long as they're wink, wink, nudge, nudge about it. <laughs> yes, that I think would be uh, shocking to the average American. And I've long said I don't think it would be a bad policy to say that C3s 
should not be doing that. It should be C4s and political action committees and, and political parties. But Yeah, I think the, the general trend that you'll see on the left and the right is whatever the other side is doing at this particular moment, that is the threat to the validity of our democracy. That is the cheating, the corrupt thing. Their wealthiest donors are the ones yeah, that are And that concern lasts for just as long as it takes to copy it. Yes, exactly. As you were talking about like 527. You've got Concord and Concordsky. It's, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's where we tend to say rather than having this nonstop partisan battling of, you know, what's the what type of organization should be able to allow engage in what types of speech and what sorts of individuals should be able to give how much sorts of money to them under what rules for disclosure is really better to have a general principle that the founders understood and embodied in the First Amendment that we're not going to have the government intensely involved in regulating political speech and political campaigns. We're going to let people organize and speak the way they want to. Uh, and so, you know, we think that that benefits people on the, the right, left and center. You know, you're talking about how there's so many media reports called the the decision that Treasury made uh, to cease collecting donor information for some nonprofits has been characterized as a win for conservatives. It's a win for every American who gives to nonprofits or who cares about nonprofits' ability to speak about politics. Uh, it's not something that is a win for and, conservatives. And, and, to, and, to return, and to return to the stakes, it doesn't matter whether you're a liberal conservative or a moderate. Somebody on your side has been viciously, personally, and possibly violently attacked in the heightened nastiness that we have right now. And allowing people, especially people who don't have the resources of a, of a billionaire to, you know, take part in the political process anonymously is fundamentally important to those fundamental rights that, Luke, you were discussing. Yeah, if you value freedom of speech, if you value privacy, if you value participation in democracy, uh, then I think donor privacy is one of the most important fronts in all of those battles today uh, at the states and federally. Well, thanks, Luke, so much for joining us and for such a good wrap-up. That is our show for this week. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher, uh, you should know that we broadcast a live video version on Facebook uh, every week, Thursday, 10 a.m. And uh, if you are watching us, you should please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks so much.